November 22nd, Paramount Pictures presents... Red alerts, all hands to battle stations. The treachery of a queen. Destroy them. Perhaps today is a good day to die. The courage of a captain. This will the entire world when we fall back. The line must be drawn here. The destiny of a planet. Watch your futures end. Resistance is futile. Star Trek First Contact. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, November 22nd in theaters everywhere. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, assimilating this... And we are here this week to talk about the legacy of Star Trek First Contact at 25. I feel incredibly old knowing that this is the 25-year anniversary of Star Trek First Contact, perhaps my favorite Star Trek film. Uh, Before we kick it off, Cam, I'll just kind of relate a story about my first experience watching this in theaters. And Friday night, my sister and I, we were just totally pumped to go see this in November. Uh, We get to the box office to buy our tickets, and it is long sold out for the entire night. We are not at like some single screen cinema. It's a big multiplex. All the showings are are totally sold out. We're just totally crushed. We had to get our parents to drive us back home. Our parents were not going to go see this movie. And then uh, the next afternoon, they had to drive us back to the movie theater slash mall where this is all going on. And we got tickets at like four o'clock in the afternoon just to make sure. And then we also showed up like 45 minutes early to make sure we got seats because we were so paranoid. But um, that's my initial viewing experience. I saw this movie twice in theaters. My dad and I went a, a couple weeks later. I, I was so, so pumped for this. But um, Cam, w- what was your first time seeing First Contact in theaters? It was uh, in no way a memorable story. I did not see it at all in theaters. I waited till it was on pay-per-view and watched it that way. So, yeah, there's no glory to this story. <laughs> but uh, didn't we go see it together uh, in theaters? Like, you do have a... Uh, you, you have seen it in theaters, right? I don't think so, no. Okay, um, I thought it was playing at the Digital no. Film Festival and we went with uh, one fallen co-host, uh, Ben Yong. But uh, maybe we just didn't invite you. Maybe, maybe. Um, of the of the TNG movies, the only ones I've seen in theaters are Generations and um, Nemesis. Okay. So how long after this one came out did you uh, go for your pay-per-view? It would have been as soon as it hit pay-per-view, so um, around the time of the VHS release. So you could probably answer that better as in terms of how long the delay was theaters to video, but it would have been then. I think it would, probably would have been almost a year like maybe in those days months. yeah yeah which yeah is just like they used to really insane. wait a long time yeah. yeah so well okay so kim i'm excited to talk about kind of the legacy of first contact we did a film review a couple years ago we'll link to that in the show notes as well we kind of dive into the minutiae the storytelling you know beat by beat the storyline what it means for the characters but this is a very enduring film. You know, you, you ask fans what are the uh, the top Star Trek movies, and the hardcore fans, they're, they're inevitably going to hit on things like First Contact, Wrath of Khan, Undiscovered Country. Um, to a certain degree, I, I wonder if mainstream audiences, they, they like the J.J. movie quite a bit. But um, this has a very, very enduring legacy among the hardcore fans as well. And I think we've been to uh, enough discussions with fans that maybe a lot of them rank this number one. Um, I think this movie, is it just tapping in to kind of the the pop culture sort of essence that was kind of the Borg at the time in that they were be able to be iconic enough that mainstream audiences got really hooked up and people were just kind of discovering it uh, in theaters and they're just kind of blown away by seeing kind of much better uh, you know, production values than when we got in, in the TNG era. Yeah, I, I think it's an aspect of... Um, they always say, don't give the audience what they want, you know, give them what they don't know they want. Now, the first TNG movie was Generations, so that's really strange. I'm guessing it was give the audience Kirk and Picard together. But what a weird movie to um, offer up to the mainstream in terms of drawing them in and making TNG on the movie on the movie screen feel like an event. 
it felt like with First Contact, they locked into exactly what the fans would want because the Borg are still a big deal at this point and the Borg on the big screen would be, you know, obviously very cinematic. And also understanding exactly what would make people who weren't necessarily Star Trek fans kind of sit up and say, hey, I want to see that. You know, you throw a trailer up with the Borg and some explosions, you know, the Borg sphere, things like that. Like, these are the images I remember. Um, and I was not a, you know, big Star Trek fan at the time this came out. So uh, I wasn't racing the theaters, but I remember the imagery of the trailers and the commercials. So it's like... It was the only TNG one, I think, that understood exactly what to market to make Star Trek seem exciting on the big screen. I think about the marketing for this, and I, I think it was very, very good marketing at the time, whether it was, you know, that like sometimes there'd be like 30 second spots uh, during commercials, even 15 second spots during commercials, and even the uh, the teaser and the full-length trailer that came out leading up to that, there was a lot of build-up towards this movie. You and I talked about, like, we like Star Trek Beyond, um, we thought it was very poorly marketed, but we don't exactly know how else you would have marketed that movie. I don't think this has that issue because, honestly, there's a lot of shots. There's a lot of line readings where you kind of think that the creators are like, yes, this is going into the trailer. And a lot of that stuff did, but I, I think this one w was very effective at grabbing a lot of the mainstream audiences as well as kind of the, the hardcore fans. In an adventure, and this is what I think delineates it from other Star Trek TNG movies, though. It, well, at least two of them is, you know, there's at least a one-hour portion of next gen or of Star Trek Generations that kind of feels like a, a TNG, like a, a B B minus TNG episode where you got the mad scientist, you're you're chasing him around the uh, the sector, whatever. And then you go to Insurrection, and that definitely has kind of that that two-part episode sort of feel. You know, First Contact doesn't really seem comparable to that. And, and there's a, a way that I, I think this movie could have been more of like an episode. And, and I don't want to get into it just now, but but I, I want to tease that idea and how they kind of took a different direction here that made it um, more cinematic in a sense. And I'm not talking about the aesthetics. I know maybe you have, you have some problems with uh, uh, Jonathan Frakes' directing, but it, it was interesting in that they kind of pushed back against what would be kind of the typical television episode format that they had done, you know, for, I would say, you know, at least half of the other movies. Oh, I mean, they definitely did. You look at just like the makeup and the introduction of the Borg Queen. You look at some of those battle shots, right, kicking off the movie. They feel bigger and they feel cinematic and they feel like something that, again, you put that in a trailer and people sit up and say like, oh, that looks really cool. And this also falls at a time where there's not a lot of, like, space combat movies. There's no Star Wars right now. It's a few years away. Um, I remember people getting really excited for Starship Troopers. Would have been, I guess, a year later. And then being really angry when they didn't get sort of a Star Warsian, you know, space combat movie. Um, you had this. Uh, a few years down the road, you'd have, you'd have something like Wing Commander, but it felt like this was actually delivering the kind of spectacle people wanted, recognizable characters, and just like a good hook, because even if you weren't a Star Trek fan, you kind of knew what the Borg were, at least visually, and just having them there was like a big, awesome hook for the movie. It's the sort of thing I just... I've never been able to understand, and maybe it's looking at it from the point of view of 2021 versus... Um, you know, making movies in the 90s, but it doesn't make sense in the movies that came after First Contact why they didn't seem to understand how you could draw in general audiences and fans by tapping into the elements of Star Trek that really hit. Like, I don't know what Insurrection was supposed to be marketing, for example. <laughs> well, I, we've talked about before. It just it makes yeah. no sense that Q was never incorporated into the TNG film franchise. Like, that would have been kind of the next big thing to do after the Borg. That would have been easy to market. That would have grabbed people's attention. And the other thing to remember, though, is Q's stories weren't typically about, you know, uh, the fate of the universe. They're usually kind of mm -hmm. smaller stories in which he was kind of the uh, the old rascal. It's really mostly just um, all good things in which, you know, the fate of the universe rests on uh, uh, Q's involvement here. I think they could have done, okay, maybe maybe a, a few changes here or there, but done similar stuff with Insurrection that maybe involved Q to kind of make things a little bit more lively a little bit more energized I, i'm not sure look 
anyone uh, who's heard the podcast before here is talk about insurrection. We, we keep recommending go read Michael Piller's book, uh, unpublished book, I think, though, but um, it's called uh, Fade In, in which he discusses the writing process. And I think we agree. It's like draft after draft after draft. It, they never really had a good idea for that movie, but overall, I kind of like Insurrection. It, it's it's a perfectly friendly, like innocuous sort of two part episode realized on the big screen. Uh, it's not a bad movie. It's just not what you're hoping for when it comes to like uh, the next gen crew in a film. No, I almost wonder too. Like, why not build a movie around Guinan and have some sort of mystery film tied to the origins of Guinan because that character was always fairly um you know intentionally mysteriously sketched out on the show and you suddenly market Whoopi Goldberg as being the focal point of a movie with the cast again it's something that I think people who aren't Star Trek fans would have sat up and said oh I'm kind of interested in this well and she's just going to be on a carousel like the entire movie right clearly that's just the trailer is her on the carousel that's the teaser the, the entire 60 second teaser trailer it's just like and and absolutely like no audio at all and this is the early days of the internet so for all of your countdowns to the movie it's just like <laughs> like a, a gif file of her going in a circle on a merry-go-round with the days counting down to the movie's release why didn't they put us in charge of marketing star trek beyond cam i, I will never understand that oh what we could have done there yeah. but um you know getting into the movie it, it itself it, it, it's an interesting one in that, um, okay, so like Ron Moore and Brandon Braga, they are tapped to do this after Star Trek Generations. Um, they kind of complained that they had like a laundry list of things to do for Star Trek Generations. That, you know, Data had to get his emotion chip, you know, that Kirk uh, had to meet Picard somehow and so on and so forth, you know. And they felt very unshackled doing this. And they're like, you know, let's do a Borg story. I think a lot of it maybe fell victim to kind of... Um, perhaps like a limited budget that they were offered. I wondered how much more successful this movie could have been if we actually got like a, a true to form Borg invasion story. Like this was like, mm-hmm. what was it? Like maybe 25 seconds of, you know, on screen action in space with the Borg cube, you know, taking yeah. on the Federation fleet. So I, 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 and what I find curious about this movie is kind of you have very much kind of the, the b story on the pl- on planet earth with Cochrane, and then you have the a story up above on the ship but th- it was going to be a very different sort of film like it, there's going to be parts uh, there's going to be time travel involved where they're searching for the borg across different times in earth's history and there'd be an extended period in the renaissance in which the borg try to invade i don't know leonardo da vinci you know I, you, you can tell that they're very very uh revved up for uh, him to appear on voyager uh, at, at that point but um it was going to be a very different film i think they landed on something that would was economical for the studio and it made fans happy enough but i wonder if there's just well let me ask you this cam do you think that there's an appetite among mainstream audiences if they were to do another star trek film and for those that maybe haven't heard the news we just found out um that the next star trek film has been delayed yet again it was supposed to be (laughs) summer 2023 it's now slated for december 22nd 2023 who even knows if this gets made we have no idea what the story is going to be we don't even know if it's going to be a kelvin verse movie at this point but I, i wonder do you think is there an appetite for like that full-on 200 million dollar let's do a borg invasion story or do you think like the borg have just been done to death at this point and like there may not be that much more to kind of um dig into them i think it's a little bit of column a a little bit of column b yeah have the borg been done to death yep and i think a lot of star trek fans not all but i think a lot of star trek fans feel like the borg have been pretty much defanged and have lost a lot of what made them so special in the first place. But this is a $200 million production, so it's not targeted at people that obsessively follow TNG, Voyager, Picard, and have tracked the history of the Borg. If you are looking to draw a blockbuster audience to a theater, like enough to fund a $200 million movie, and you have a massive spectacle with the Borg, I I think it would work. I I think it would be the most likely thing I could think of in terms of a very expensive Star Trek movie that would put butts in seats. Do you think that they would feel obligated to have just kind of that, that clip of Locutus, you know, um, you know, uh, hmm. of course, uh, give, given the high def treatment? And, and it could have come from uh, all good, or, uh, Best of Both Worlds, or it could have even come from that uh, kind of uh, nightmare moment that, he, that uh, 
Picard was having here. But I, I just sense it that if you in, insert that clip somehow, you know, like that, that's the moment you get like audiences kind of uh, cheering, you know, just like, oh, yeah, it's such an iconic thing in television history. I, I, I can recognize it here in this blockbuster film. I mean, it's the sort of iconic image that I just don't think they would back away from. I think they would always lean into it. You look at <laughs> when they brought Khan back for Into Darkness, they had to do the Khan scream. Like they like they could not help themselves yeah. from doing it. So I think if they were to bring the Borg back to the big screen in a big, you know, blockbuster, they are 100% going to somehow work in a visual reference to Locutus, whether it is repurposed footage from the episode or from first contact or just even bringing patrick stewart back in some sort of fashion and maybe de-aging him um, through cg or finding another way the way they did into darkness to kind of attach that sort of iconic uh, iconic imagery to another character i just think like and here's kind of maybe a bit of a stumbling block here is what is a story to be told in this situation like what would be a compelling thing for both you know the hardcore fans that kind of feel that the borg have been done to death at this point and also the general audiences that would be excited to come in and see one of the most iconic star trek villains you know here realized on the big screen and in, in, in a huge budgeted film in which you know there's a lot of action i think you know you could do something in which you you have sequences that feel much like um stuff in dark frontier which i think you and i agree when we did our recent rewatch we were like oh wow this is a super underrated episode i think that there's something inherently scary like frightening about the borg that i i I still think they can make it work here but i i just i'm kind of stuck on like what would be the hook into this borg sort of movie if there was ever if it was ever to come to pass yeah like i agree i think it's really tough to hook into what makes the borg really effective now after so much usage but the thing was, um, even by the time you're doing Descent, uh, the two-parter at the end of TNG, the Borg had kind of lost their bite. Um, but it was like Voyager, at the right angles, could discover things like in Scorpion or, as you said, Dark Frontier. It's just finding the right way in because, you know, they also are doing Unimatrix Zero, where I don't know that we all recall that as a great Borg story that we all treasure. It's just about like finding the right creative team to really latch onto a Borg-centric story that would have that sort of fear factor, especially for a species that we have seen exhausted story-wise in a lot of ways throughout the course of the franchise. Like, it was kind of cool to see the Borg cube and some Borg on Picard, but like there was no real meat there and... My takeaway is basically a footnote for the history of the Borg. I don't really walk away going, oh, what a profound Borg story that was. I think, like, maybe the angle would be, it can't be big picture Borg. You've got to choose a very specific, you know, action-adventure type story and work the Borg into it. Like, they are players in the story, but it's not, let's examine the mythology of the Borg for two hours. Is it almost kind of a story around, like, maybe different Borg factions or something in which... You know, look, you can make the argument the Borg is broken a little. You know, there's um, different motivations behind, you know, different elements of the collective. And maybe Starfleet or the Federation's caught in the middle. I'm just, the last thing I want to see is the Borg on their way to assimilate all of Earth once again. Like we've, like every other Star Trek movie, it's Earth is in peril. I don't want Star Trek to do that again. Like I'd just be so bored with that idea. Um, I also have like this image in my head that I think would be great for marketing. Uh, I, I love patting myself on the back for my creative ideas that I, I come up with as well. But hmm. what if there's just kind of like this mammoth Borg cube that we see that it splits into smaller cubes and spreads out and goes from there. And then those smaller cubes uh, split into other smaller cubes, which turn out to be the size of the ones that we like are so familiar with. It's just kind of showing kind of the immense size of the collective and kind of the force that they are i just there's something about the borg where they're the scariest where they seem indefeatable and it's really the human moments that we see in uh star trek that uh, you know just, just stuff with like the borg queen interacting with data you know like that's the sort of stuff that i like makes them even more frightening but you 
can relate to them. And I think like whatever executives, you know, gave the notes to uh, the writers and said, yeah, you need to have some sort of personified antagonist here. I, I, I think that was kind of a smart idea. Well, you know, the Borg were uh, heavily inspired by just zombies in general, you know, in zombie films like the Romero films. And um, one of the things they found when they wanted to make zombies scary again was what if they could run? Tyler, what if we had running Borg everywhere? Okay, yes, yes. Actually, no, what if they have little jetpacks on their feet? And, um, and they're at Yosemite, and um, they, get, they, get, they get to fly up and uh, catch uh, Falling Kirk uh, off the mountain. You know, that'd be fun. I just wonder if you made something a little more of a boxed-in kind of horror story. It doesn't have to be full-on horror, but you made the Borg um, something that's trying to invade. It's And you could have characters getting picked off throughout. And you could really build up the tension of the Borg trying to assimilate people. Like, I think you could make a really good, lean Borg suspense story. I just... I think the problem that Star Trek falls into, and it's something we've seen in Picard and we saw when we're doing stuff like Unimatrix Zero, is that... When you keep trying to tackle and expand Borg mythology, it just kind of defangs them because they're no longer scary the more you, um, you know, explain them or evolve them into something that's increasingly broken. I, I pitched it long ago and I don't have an answer and I didn't have one then, which is that maybe people more talented than me have to look at the Borg, say this is a species that aspires to perfection. That's why they keep assimilating, you know, all of these species. So the Borg are broken, right? But they're going to keep trying to evolve to recognize that they are broken and need to fix themselves. So, like, what is the next stage of the Borg? Maybe that's what they need to figure it out. But somehow pull it off in a way where it doesn't feel like, uh, you know, the Empire turns into the First Order. Where it's, like, the same thing, but yeah. otherwise, you know, just a new name. Like, they've got to figure out how you could evolve the Borg into something new and exciting that people would, I think, you know, still visually or recognized as Borg, but feels like something they haven't quite seen before. Well, I, I think going to like a smaller story, like we're kind of pitching the idea of like kind of this uh, tentpole film, you know, that, that has a giant budget in which there's a Borg invasion going on. I No doubt there could be some real cool high concept action sequences, but I think like having like a very focused smaller story that's going on as more of your A story Maybe the Borg invasion stuff is more kind of in the background until we get to the climax. You know, I, I think, yeah, I think shrinking it because I, I just have the feeling we could have like this two and a half hour mess on our hands where it's just like action beat after action beat, and we'd get bored ultimately, especially if we're not totally engaged with characters. And I, I honestly, I think the best thing is like. Like I don't think the TNG crew is coming back for yet another Borg invasion movie. I don't think we're going to see this in the Kelvinverse. So my best guess, if we were ever to get it, it would be like a whole new uh, group of characters. And so I wonder if you, you know, make it smaller somehow. What what if they're, you know, what if it just starts with one wayward drone uh, on a on a, a space station who gets another drone assimilated and kind of goes from there. It's more of that kind of zombie element that you, you were talking about. And that kind of builds up the tension. And, you know, I, like I'm trying to think of ways that it's just not going to feel like a Transformers movie where it's just like, okay, who cares about any of these characters? Who cares about what happens next? And I am fearful of a Borg story being told through like the J.J. Abrams factory. Because I just feel like they would look at them in very superficial ways and you would get just kind of the Borg action movie and the way they looked at Khan very superficially. I would like if we if we ever get the Borg on the big screen again to be filtered through someone who genuinely understands and appreciates what the Borg do and also exactly how to use them. Because I think if it was a JJ movie, <laughs> it's a ticking clock, um, you know annihilation is at hand and we must stop the Borg or something. And maybe that's a simplistic way to frame it, but I just don't think it would be a very nuanced take on the Borg or something that expands what we expect from the Borg in the way that First Contact so successfully did in 96. Yeah, like honestly, maybe it's just something like let's have a big action slash assimilation sequence at the very start of the movie. And uh, all we know is like the Borg are en route to, I don't know, some sort of colony or something. And that's where you're building your tension as, you know, maybe a, a ragtag Starfleet crew ha makes a, a close escape and has to warn this colony and they've got to prepare. And, you know, just something a little bit smaller as opposed to, like you said, just kind of like the overblown where 
pretty much all the Borg drones are played by MMA fighters. You know, it's like kind of like, eh, like it's, and again, you joked about it, but like my fear is like they would create running Borg to make them even scarier, which um, that is still like (laughs) a funny image to picture. (laughs) I kind of like the idea of the running Borg. That would just be funny to watch. But I, I do think... And I think a lot of people would say, well, the Borg can't be scary because we've seen too much of them. But I would point to something like Halloween 2018 from, you know, a few years ago, which I think took Michael Myers, a character that had been run into the ground to the point where he was controlled by a cult or reimagined as sort of a Rob Zombie redneck type character um, and made him scary again. You've got to sometimes go back to the essence. So I do think you could strip a lot of the sort of Borg mythology we've gotten over the last, you know, 15 years or whatever, and take it back to the core of what made them scary and do something interesting. It's just the right person to do it. Yeah, maybe, look, maybe we just have like a ship that gets blasted into the uh, Delta Quadrant for some reason. They're in Borg territory, and it's about them making escape and trying to save kind of the next uh, planet from getting assimilated it it could lend itself to kind of that smaller scale storytelling within what's going on the dynamics on the ship and then have like kind of this big landscape about the external stuff going on around them that that would lend itself to some interesting action sequences and you know i i think there is a story to be told but i i'm I'm fearful of what that might turn out to be um you know going into the movie itself there's something i i want to ask you cam is this kind of essentially the end uh, of Data's arc as we know it in Next Generation. And I I ask that because he gets the emotion chip in the previous film. He's able to turn it off for a minute or two in this one, and then the Borg Queen is able to access it and tempt him for a split second. And ultimately, he has kind of that big hero moment where he punches the plasma conduit and everybody loses their flesh. Um, but after that, you go to Insurrection, his programming reverts to a childlike state, and then they kind of seem to ignore any emotion chip in Star Trek Nemesis, and he just, I mean, his arc literally ends there because he dies, but I just, like, I, I don't know what development was going on with Data in that final movie. I, I think this might have been, like, kind of the, the the end of Data's real arc when it comes to how we know him as a longtime Star Trek character. I think Data was an issue for the TNG movies and that when you look at the originals, Kirk and Spock were your leads. So they really had the endless evolution of Spock to deal with and they took that character on a journey over the course of his six movies. With TNG, because it's an ensemble show, it doesn't necessarily demand that um, Picard and Data are the two leads. Obviously, Data's the fan favorite, so it makes sense for marketing in terms of you know, grabbing a larger audience to make Data your secondary character. But it's the sort of thing I think would have been smarter if they'd shifted the focus. Maybe, you know, maybe Worf is, I don't know, the co-lead of one of the movies, or Geordi, or Troy. Um, It doesn't really matter who. It just feels like they should have maybe shifted the focus a little more because it just felt like they ran out of stuff to do with Data. And unlike Spock, he didn't have kind of the endless terrain to travel. With Data, they hit kind of a hard stop with this emotion chip stuff. Crusher was done wrong by these movies. Like, it's just, it it really is a travesty that she was given absolutely nothing to do. When, in fact, we know that her relationship with Picard is is fundamentally different than his relationship with anyone else in the crew. Um, That said, you bring up Worf a moment ago. I think that First Contact, if we want to kind of address that movie directly again, this is sneakily, like a really good wharf showcase like really good where it's stuff going on on the bridge with him arguing about whether or not they need to abandon ship picard you know calling him a coward we have the um the uh deflector dish sequence in which he gets that uh hero moments uh <laughs> and uh, it's also just him coming up in the defiance and you know having adam scott as his helmsman and getting saved but like this is sneakily like a really good wharf movie and i think after you know picard data and Riker, i I think this is kind of like wharf's movie afterwards i agree although i do have questions about the ramming speed for the defiant (laughs) yeah what would what does that look like but it's also like, I don't know that in a, you know, whether it's DS9 or TNG, they would have had Worf running a kamikaze mission on a Borg cube. 
Uh, it could have worked. It just feels like a very movie decision. Uh, yeah. The sort of thing that, like a mainstream audience would totally eat up. But um, no, like I think this movie does the ensemble the best of any of the uh, TNG movies. Uh, except for poor uh, Crusher, who... The thing about Crusher is her material is pretty much taken by Lily Sloan, right? Like, yeah. you have Lily Sloan talking to Picard when he's going too far. Like, that's a conversation that Crusher would have if it was the TV show. Um, you know, Troy gets her moments throughout here. You get drunk Troy. But Worf, it's the most sort of, like, character depth I think we're getting in these movies with Worf, where you have the whole, yeah, him calling Worf a coward. And it's a time where Worf is actually making a suggestion that is actually smart and makes sense yeah. versus a lot of what they did on the you know TV show of TNG where Worf would make a suggestion. It's like, you know, like a peaceful group of like friendly aliens show up and Worf's like, fire captain. I think we should fire. And they're like, no, Worf. No, no, that's a bad idea. Whereas here, everything Worf is saying makes sense. And that's something I wish they'd done more of, which is actually have Worf make, uh, you know, arguments that literally do make sense and maybe are the best course of action. Picard didn't know what to do with a good suggestion from Worf, so he uh, he got really defensive and called him a coward. You know, I do think that Picard was in the right when he said, get off my bridge, after Worf mm. literally walked up to his superior officer and said, if you're any other man, I would kill you where you stand. If you're literally threatening the life of your superior officer, you do deserve to get kicked off the ship. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. Someone needs to do a fan edit of, um, of Worf, like, arguing back at Picard and just cut to Picard smashing his showcase of ships. Yes, yes. <laughs> but um, the, the other thing is, Cam, is this not like the best supporting cast that the TNG films ever received here? And maybe there's been like great actors, you know, we have like F. Murray Abraham, for example, um, in uh, Insurrection. But I would say that you, you actually have like interesting characters that you care about, that they are played by very charismatic actors. You've got Zephyr Cochran as played by James Cromwell on the planet. You've got Lily Sloan, who you just alluded to, kind of got the kind of the the um, the crusher surrogate in this movie. And then, of course, like Alice Krieg is a board queen. She is probably up there in the top two, top three Star Trek villains of all time. And like she just absolutely nailed this character in kind of the the, the scary sexual sort of being that she was to someone like Data. And it was it, it, one of the things that I clued into watching this again is like. Uh, you know, when Picard is touching the Phoenix, uh, and he invites Data to do it as well, and he's just like, oh yeah, these are textures, blah, blah, blah. You kind of follow that beat up with, uh, that beat up again with him getting his own skin and, uh, the queen kind of blowing on it and like him getting that sense of touch. And it's just kind of those like kind of subtle beats. Like, honestly, I, I, I'm kind of dumb. It took me about 25 years to kind of pick up on kind of the, those nuances that are being laid there, but it's just very interesting stuff with what they're doing with kind of an antagonist there. But uh, the, going back to what I was saying, I, I think that it's just kind of the, the ancillary characters, the supporting characters here in, in First Contact were, were just like, they really did knock it out of the park with what's um, <laughs> compared with what you're used to getting with generic 90s man in most of those next gen episodes. <laughs> well, it feels like the writers were actively excited about writing great material for their three new characters here. Obviously, the Borg Queen, if you're going to introduce that character, Look, people are going to be excited to write the Borg Queen. That's just something new and awesome. You've got Alice Krieger. What could we do there? So the opportunities are endless. But you can totally imagine the movie where Lily Sloan is the most grating character in the movie because she's an audience avatar character. And you can totally picture her being a very blank character or just the type of character where people are like, just get her off the screen. I want to focus on the characters doing what they do best. But the fact was they gave her a very dynamic personality. You've got Alfre Woodard, who's a fantastic actress. And she has some of the best moments in the movie. Like one of my favorite moments and something maybe another conversation point too in this movie's favor is that um, you lose a lot of the Star Trek wonder in especially I think the next two movies. And you have that moment where Picard basically is saying, you know, to trust him. And they basically he take, basically takes her hand and shows her like the observation window and sort of the wonder of being in space. And we've seen that in great TNG episodes like Who Watches the Watchers or the episode First Contact, where it's all about kind of the the wonder and the majesty of what this future could be. And it's something that's like absent in um, 
the other movies. And you see it both through the introduction of Lily Sloan here and her entrance into the world of Star Trek. And you see it through Cochrane and his, you know, slowly emerging role within the history of the franchise in that moment where he goes into space and is staring out at the stars. That's the sort of thing. It's like, why is there not more moments like this? Because it feels like here the writers understood that, yes, give them Borg action, give them dynamic supporting characters, and tap into the spirit of what makes Star Trek so magical for all the fans. You're all astronauts on some sort of Star Trek. <laughs> like, um... Well... <laughs> But um, no, that the, line. Uh, well. I, I know. but the, the the moment where like uh, Picard like reveals to Lily where exactly she is, and she sees planet Earth from outer space, you know that that's kind of the majesty. But also just Cochrane looking into the telescope and seeing like this giant spaceship, uh, you know, from the future, and, and when he's actually on the Phoenix, and then they get a glance of the Enterprise in the distance, and he reacts to that, you know, like I, I think there, there's just uh, that sense of wonder about what space is for a lot of people that aren't really um, in it the way that it's part and parcel of everyday life for 24th century folks. It's kind of, I I wish they brought that more to Star Trek, just like the other, like the other majesty that, that comes in there. So um, speaking of kind of that uh, Phoenix flight there, I I am kind of curious about the Vulcans in in this. And like, um, it's very clear that, you know, Earth is too primitive. 600 million people are dead. Most big cities are destroyed. Very few functioning governments. But one guy gets past the uh, light speed barrier. And these Vulcans on a little scouting mission, they're like, yeah, let's just go land on this planet and introduce alien life to these folks uh, that are just recovering from this war that uh, destroyed much of their planet. Like, like who gave the, uh, the green light for that plan? Or were they just making an executive decision on that little scouting ship? <laughs> That's an excellent question. I mean, the Vulcans are known to be incredibly logical, so maybe we have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they really weighed the pros and cons of this and felt like it was it was time. Um, it seems like a bit of a reach. So are you saying it would be more like in uh, the Enterprise two-parter in reality for these poor Vulcans? <laughs> well, yeah, really. <laughs> uh, in Amir Darkly, yes. Uh, but like, well, I just think about like all the effort that... Uh, the Federation went to to ensure that first contact in the episode, the TNG episode first contact went well, is they were planting people um, early on, like Riker getting a, a feel for the society. Like, it's something very uh, taken very importantly. I don't think, like, these Vulcan uh, uh, astronauts are getting in touch with um, the Vulcan Council, um, which is light years away. Like, I don't know if there's, like, uh, that great subspace communications at that point where they decide one hour later yeah let's just like go ahead and land on this planet i think they made the executive decision and the vulcans live to regret that for the next hundred years as we learned from star trek enterprise (laughs) yeah um because we're long past the days of carbon creek where maybe their (laughs) word would have meant something (laughs) long past (laughs) any of the that that vulcan i'm blanking on his name but the vulcan who stayed behind on planet earth may have still been alive um you know 130 years later when uh the uh, vulcans actually made first contact 130 years actually it's more like 100 110 years i think i don't think it's impossible yeah Um, could have still been around it could have been because if yeah like spock was still around quite far off in the uh, JJ verse so it, it's entirely possible I think Sara committed to age 202 so you know yeah yeah um yeah I think that's do how do you remember what the time difference was in e, t, uh, e squared with older to Paul uh it was uh 117 years if I recall and she is about 60 so she would have been around 180 mm-hmm. um, at that point so if that uh, Vulcan character from Carbon, Carbon Creek who stayed behind on Earth if he was like say 40 uh, Vulcan years uh, yeah he'd only be like 150 160 years old by the time uh, Star Trek First Contact happens like that is kind of a curious encounter where he's trying to hide his identity maybe he makes it through the uh, Third World War and then he's like, uh, hey, guys, remember me? And uh, <laughs> I'm sure he gets a talking to from the Vulcan Expeditionary Group uh, after that. <laughs> I would have to imagine, though, the Vulcans probably had scouted a little bit, right? Like, they must have been watching for a bit. Um, it just seems like that would be the smart thing to do. And I tend to uh, defer to the Vulcans being smart. 
it's just that we've never had any official explanation. We never had a tossed off line on Enterprise or anything like that. Maybe we can get a short trek out of it. Oh, we can only hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I, just to go a little bit into the minutiae of this movie, um, this is something I've never really thought that much about. I don't know if anyone or too many fans have, but what is the nature exactly of Picard's psychic relationship with the Borg, Cam? Like, it uh, never comes up again. It never presented itself prior to this movie, but he's clearly getting, like, some sort of, like, psychic transmissions sent to him at the very start of the movie and also he knows that uh, data is still trapped in engineering and he goes back for him um it 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 doesn't appear as if you know uh picard in the star trek picard era it was dealing with those same psychic um kind of powers it's mostly just his own ptsd like i it's a very kind of hokey sort of um kind of conceit if you kind of really think about it well, yeah, the shorthand is it's there to help move the plot along. It makes things a lot easier just to communicate to an audience so that if you have never seen Star Trek before, you go, oh, okay, he, he can understand the Borg. Done. Um, but, yeah, it's <laughs> it's something I can forgive because a lot of this movie is about Picard's PTSD, that he hasn't gotten over the Borg. He's still carrying so much anger and rage towards him so that the fact that they're essentially interrupting with his brain activity on a regular basis. It's just carrying that haunting, that extra step forward. Why it's never explained again, I have no answer for this. But within a, the <laughs> confines of a two-hour movie, I can go along with it. Yeah, I just, it's something that, it's just like, I don't think it's tech, like, knowledge that like, they left in his head. Like, I don't think it's a, a plant, uh, like an implant, because I don't think Starfleet would ever allow him to be in command again, knowing that uh, they could, the board could tap into that. Uh, I, I really think that psychic powers for a human, I, I think that's kind of hokey, and I don't know how the Borg would be able to even transmit that over light years upon light years. Um, yeah, I, I think it's one of those things, like, the less you think about it, the, the easier the, uh, the movie is to digest. Maybe this was a uh, early audition for the Professor X role in X-Men. <laughs> Ah, okay, okay, okay. I think you're on the right track here. Um, hey, now, Cam, can I, uh, let me ask you this, because like, uh, we, you and I were both on Letterboxd. Uh, you, you guys, uh, you listeners can follow us there as well, which is kind of that social media for film watchers. And um, before I did my rewatch, I looked at uh, what I'd rated it before, and I did, I, I gave First Contact um, four stars. And I did my rewatch, and I was like, this is more kind of a three and a half star movie for me it might be maybe my favorite star trek movie uh at least in my top three uh three and a half stars i noticed you bumped it from two and a half stars to uh three stars uh tell me a little bit about kind of your feelings doing your most recent rewatch this week yeah uh for me what carried it up a bit was what i've touched on which is some of the really wondrous moments that tap into the star trek that i really love through the lily sloan stuff through the cochran story and that I feel like they carry um, so much weight that maybe I was being a little dismissive of how much they inform what I really love about Star Trek. And just when you compare that to the rest of the movies, including the original films, you don't get a lot of those moments. And so it's like those are the things that really connect me to this movie. I do struggle in that a lot of the Borg invasion stuff still to me looks you know, kind of like TV direction on a large scale. Like, it just doesn't have the visual wonder I'd like, which is why I've never been 100% in the bag for this one. But in terms of the character dynamics, in terms of um, those moments of wonder, and just in terms of using your ensemble well, that's what sort of bumped it up for me. I, I think the space visuals look exceptional, and it just, mm -hmm. you know, props to the VFX crews from like way back in the 90s where they're using models wherever it makes sense i i know what you're saying with regards to kind of maybe the uh, the borg stuff within the interior of the ship i i i think of it more like kind of um perfectly competent standard 1990s film direction you know it it's like um and so I'll, I'll kind of give them a pass on that. And like, it's not necessarily those sequences have aged uh, the best, but there, there's moments where like you're seeing kind of the point of view of the Borg, where they kind of have these warped, digitized, uh, you know, POV of kind of the Starfleet officers roaming about uh, with uh, guns lowered so that the Borg don't attack them, which that never really made sense to me. Like if, if I saw a, 
uh, a Starfleet officer and I was a drone, I would assume that they're going to cause some trouble, especially if they're carrying rifles that might not be pointed at me. <laughs> but, um, you know, so it's kind of, it is interesting, like, just how, the, you know, kind of the visuals are not the best in this, but I, I think they're done well enough that it, they never became distracting for me, but they never necessarily kind of captured my attention the way you look at something like Star Trek, the motion picture, where it's just absolutely majestic, or, or just some of those uh, moments in, say, The Wrath of Khan, where I, I think about when they're on the uh, uh, Genesis planet, and they're just kind of gazing uh, over this cliff, and just kind of the majesty captured within a matte painting, which we need to do more matte paintings. I, oh, yeah. I, I'm just like, because those look so much better than what w- CG landscapes, where I just look at that, and I'm like, yeah, that's clearly CG. That, that never impresses me. Whereas I, I look at, you know, just, just kind of the, the hull of the Enterprise E, where they're kind of zooming in closer and closer to the deflector dish. I was just like, oh, this looks fantastic. You know, like I, I never shrug and say like, oh, yeah, somebody just made that a computer. I look at that and I'm like, oh, wow, somebody put a lot of time into making this model really stand out and look realistic and make me think that there could be a life-size version of that orbiting a planet somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... The sort of thing, like, you would probably never have this movie made this way. It's such a specific time where they were bringing the Star Trek films, you know, the TNG universe, to the to the movies and saying, okay, everyone who worked on the TV show, go ahead, make the movies. Whereas, like, you look at the original series movies, and Star Trek Six is another one I think of when I think of very cinematic visuals. We saw that on the big screen, you know, not so long ago. And it looked fantastic as well. But you look at those original series movies, like the first one, obviously Roddenberry has a lot of involvement, but even then you've got Robert Wise, who is an incredible visual filmmaker overseeing this. And then you go past that and Harv Bennett is taking over and it feels like it's a movie group handling those movies. So like, it feels like they are kind of working at that scale. Whereas when you got to the nineties movies, they never did that. And I always kind of wondered if that's what maybe held the TNG movies back from kind of just cracking that you know mainstream love that the original series ones did yeah i get i i totally get what you're saying there it's kind of it's rick berman who is kind of a a tv company man given the opportunity to produce films and he's going to do it a little bit differently and you kind of wonder like how much influence he's having on kind of the uh the visual look of the movie which he's a producer who during the the series is that is what's known as a hands-on producer like that is kind mm-hmm. of where uh nowadays you know i think they do want to have directors have a little bit more leeway in television um just in terms of like let's make it more visually striking i know that ron moore uh, when he was doing Battlestar galactica he uh, he wanted to give the directors way more leeway i think he always said like you guys just do something that surprises me every episode just do something that surprises me and you don't often get that uh, in like la law er like kind of that era of television um, speaking of that era of television, I, I, I alluded to this at the very start of our conversation, Cam, about how this movie could have felt more like a TNG episode, and that the original plan, or one of the uh, later drafts, would have had Picard on the planet, uh, dealing with Cochrane, trying to get Cochrane to come around, and it would have been Riker handling kind of the uh, the Borg invasion aboard the ship, and that would have meant that whatever kind of PTSD that would have been lingering with Picard, it would not have been addressed in that version of the film. It would have been kind of very much a Picard story uh, and a Picard that we recognize from the television series versus superhero Picard that we got in the movies. It would have been him dealing with Cochrane. I think Patrick Stewart and James Cromwell going one-on-one, there would have been even deeper conversations going on between, uh, you know, uh, the Starfleet crew and Cochrane as well. It would have felt very much like a TNG episode. I think it would have been a bit of a deeper movie. I think it would have made fans, like, really kind of, like, uh, bummed out in that, like, well, not bummed out, but disappointed in that, like, they would have been going in expecting this big kind of Borg action movie, and that would have been more of the, the B-plot with Riker up on the ship, and we would have never really dealt with kind of the Borg queen. I don't think she was in any iteration of that script as well and maybe the the data stuff may not have quite made it in and and picard you know just kind of coming to grips with his own trauma caused by that like that would not have been there but what do you think of the idea of like essentially Riker and picard switching roles as we saw or as would have been in one of the iterations of the script well my favorite aspect of this movie is the cochran story 
that's what hooks me every time and you know just the music from jerry goldsmith playing as they're going to space like that's magic to me so like the idea of having a movie where it's <laughs> patrick stewart and james cromwell talking to each other for two hours probably appeals more to me than a full-on you know kind of borg attack movie like we have here with picard like i'm not a huge fan of um you know action hero picard but at the same time i kind of appreciate that they decided to mix up the elements in an unexpected way like you don't anticipate that you're going to have the movie where picard's the one fighting it out with the borg on the ship while riker's you know having the serious talks and going into space with cochran like it's actually not giving you what you would expect so i kind of support them on the decision even if i would happily just watch a movie where you know picard sits at a table talking to cochran for two hours <laughs> like um <laughs> my dinner with andre <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah my my, my dinner with zephram mm-hmm. but um i i, I just kind of wish they spent a little bit more time with riker and that he had like a bigger role to play in the the time in montana like i just i think they kind of scratched the surface a little bit there um so that's just kind of one critique but okay let's say they were their roles were switched you know Riker was on the ship Picard was on the planet do you think first contact and take your own personal feelings away um like because I know like you're totally down for my dinner with Zephyrum Mm. but do you think that this movie would have been enduring among the fan base or even more enduring or or, or, you know even less I think if it hits you know, following that path, then it could continue to be as enduring. Like, I don't... Yeah. I I think it's just, like, kind of that magic of, did the movie deliver? Did people walk out cheering? Then I think they might be. If you have a sequence where it's Picard going on that test flight with Cochrane, and you're getting that majesty and that wonder, and that is kind of one little quibble I have with the movie. I think they could have exploited that flight sequence to far greater effect than they even do. I think it's effective in the movie, but they really could have, I think, done even more wondrous things with it. If you have that kind of big, wondrous finale with the two characters, I think it could really work. You know, you look at what the um, previous... um, or one of the most previous uh, popular Star Trek movies was, which is The Voyage Home, right? Like, there's no action in that movie. And people fell in love with it. They walked out, you know, loving it and just the story of it. Not just the laughter, because you can make a Star Trek movie that has jokes, but they really got caught up in the adventure of it. So I think if you still have that adventure, and it's just, you know, manages to have that sort of magic between the frames that just really brings people to life when they watch it, it could totally be a fan favorite. I don't think it's dependent on Borg action. Yeah, I, I, I just wonder about how much of this movie is, like, what sticks with people is the Picard stuff, him dealing with the drama, the the trauma on the ship, plus Data dealing with the Borg Queen. I, I think so much of that is just kind of like part and parcel about like what makes this movie so good. I would have loved to seen, you know, Picard on in Montana. Like, I, I almost wish as if they could have had like a Picard clone, like one on the ship, uh, Shinzon down on the planet dealing with Cochrane somehow like that would have kind of been the perfect movie to me well it feels almost like you could have made a separate movie about the Cochrane stuff and done your Borg movie which is maybe a compliment to the Cochrane stuff that it's rich enough that it could support its own movie um it, it would obviously be a very different universe where we have two different movies maybe they should have held on to the Cochrane stuff and done that instead of Insurrection but um as it is I'm happy with you know just balancing the two but I, I do think there's enough there. Well, okay, so Cam, um, like I, I, one of my favorite Star Trek movies. If you had to rank it, you know, approximately, I, I know we don't have our lists uh, at hand. Maybe we do. Uh, the thing is, like with me, like my my moods change often enough that maybe this would be my number one movie one given day. This uh, some days maybe my number three. Um, where does it rank generally for you? Um, well, it's easily the top of the TNG movies easily um and it is um i'm trying to think of the originals where does it it's above star trek 5 um for, for you this is more of a middle of the road star trek movie is that accurate yeah like it, it's probably in the same sort of area as star trek 3 so yeah it's more of like that mid-tier 
Okay. Yeah. For me, this, this is more of a top tier Star Trek film. I, I know what you're saying with some of the stuff, maybe not as cinematic as you get from a lot of the TOS adventures. Um, there's just, for me, there's just like so many great elements going on on the planet with Cochrane, plus Picard dealing with the trauma, plus Data and the Borg Queen. I'm just like, it kind of, it, it grips me in a way. I've probably seen this movie 30 times. And just after this last rewatch, I'm kind of at the point where like, I don't know when the next time is that I, I feel I'll be compelled to watch it again. Like I, maybe that kind of played a little bit into why I, I gave it four stars and, and kind of bumped it down to three and a half stars. It's not to say I don't like the movie. It's just um, after 25 years, and, and I guess I've watched it more, uh, on average, more than once a year for all, all that period. It's kind of like I, I wonder if I need to um, kind of take a step back for maybe another uh, five, six, seven years. I'm curious, what do you think this movie was doing storytelling-wise that the other TNG movies just didn't understand? Well... It's it's such a tough question because like uh, okay you know a lot of the other movies felt like neither fish nor fowl you know like what exactly mm-hmm. was the story that they're trying to tell like generations was like this mishmash uh, of like crews where is like oh yeah can't wait till Chekhov gets to meet up with Worf that's gonna be a thrilling adventure but it's just kind of like um and it's a weird kind of B level uh tng episode through like uh the middle hour as well you go to insurrection it's it, it's perfectly nice movie you know inoffensive but it, it really does feel like a two-parter and then nemesis just kind of like it, it's watchable enough but it kind of seems like they want to be dark for the sake of darkness they want to kill off data for the sake of killing off data they're doing a lot of things just for the sake of doing them i just this one kind of lands in a way and, and we hit enough character beats and they're tapping into kind of the, the pop culture demand for Borg on the big screen. I, I think this one just it uh, it, it uh, really knew the zeitgeist uh, at, at that moment. Yeah, and I wonder if a difference would have been made if um, they'd waited a little bit longer for the TNG movies, because it just felt like you know obviously you've done seven seasons of um, you know TNG whereas the original series was only three years and then you do the movies like 20 years later or whatever it is you know 15 years later um, and I wonder if the writers and you know all the people had taken time away from the TNG crew if it would have maybe made some of the other movies better I'm not going to speak to this one because I think this one delivered what fans wanted but it felt like the inspiration was really happening with this one. Like, they were genuinely excited about the storytelling elements. Whereas, when you get to the others, it often felt like, here's another Star Trek movie. Yeah, it's, uh, they felt almost obligatory, in a way. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. And it was also that era where you had, like, you know, X-Files had gone to the movies, you know, with uh, Fight the Future, and you wanted to keep this viable because there was just an expectation. I remember this at the time reading about it where they looked at T and Gene were like, well, TOS was a huge hit on, you know, on the big screen and had a enduring, um, you know, period of time as a franchise for film fans. So clearly T and G will as well. And, you know, I remember a lot of the conversations were clearly X-Files will as well. And I just wonder if there was something about TOS that just was a real time and place. Because we haven't really seen it since. We've seen things like the Marvel Universe, which feel like TV on the big screen. But we haven't seen like a show that's become this enduring big screen you know, property. 90s was a weird time, man. I, I remember it. Um... So yeah, uh, folks, uh, maybe, maybe some of you have been wondering, uh, you know, if we're going to do a 50-year anniversary of uh, First Contact, I can confirm, yes, you know, in another 25 years, we will tackle this once more. <laughs> My last point, though, I wanted to make was about the legacy of um, this film is maybe we could just touch on the legacy it had on the TV Star Trek going forward. Because obviously the Borg are going to continue on through Voyager and Evolve. But look at the show Enterprise and how much it draws from First Contact. Obviously the you know Cochrane you know, shuttle going into space. That shot is used in the opening of Enterprise. And a lot of the storytelling with the Vulcans and Earth feels like it's just sprung out of the inspiration of this movie. Well, I was even... I started to listen to the Damon Lindelof uh, uh, 
commentary that is included on the Blu-ray set. And even he was just talking about like how it's his favorite next gen movie. And I, I got to thinking like, I think this is kind of, it, it's a favorite movie of a lot of people behind the scenes on Star Trek. And that's why a lot of that imagery has kind of stuck around. And I, I'd be shocked if, uh, it, it, well, you know, well, it's, I, it, it's obvious that legacy will continue because of, of course we, uh, I, I don't know, fast forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear a small or potentially big Star Trek Picard spoiler, but you know, uh, the Borg Queen will be back. So I wonder what that means for season two. So, uh, you know, this movie's in the influence of it, it will be living on for sure. Yeah, and the Borg Queen does feel like it's big takeaway and that that has shaped the Star Trek universe um, going forward. So it's rare to see that with one of the movies, but it's something I would love to see happen again where we had like a big hit movie where you kind of carry the excitement of the movie going experience into the evolution of the show. That's just something that I don't know if it'll work with how they're going to be approaching the movies going forward, but fingers crossed. Yeah. All right. So folks, we uh, have been doing, you know, Star Trek prodigy look, uh, like kind of looking into that series. Uh, we're, we, the show's going to go on a hiatus in just a few weeks. It'll be back in early in the new year again. So we figured it, we'll, we'll give it a, uh, wait until it hits episode five. Then we'll talk about it as opposed to doing kind of these mini reviews at the ends of our episodes. But, um, uh, Cam, otherwise, uh, next week, uh, we will be checking in on Star Trek discovery, the season four premiere is happening. I think it, for us, it's more a case of morbid curiosity. Uh, it, we're not going to be reviewing it week to week, at least uh, at the very beginning. We have other episodes planned. But Cam, going into season four of Discovery, uh, you know, where are you at with the series? I'm just going to sit back and take it all in. Like, it, I have no expectations. Um there's no hype for me, and I, to be honest, I haven't picked up a lot of hype for Discovery at all, period. I haven't picked up a lot of it uh, online, I'll say that much. Yeah. So it's just like, okay, let's see what it is. All it can do is surprise me. Like, honestly, like if it delivers something on par with Season 3, then, uh, well, it'll give me what I guess I kind of expect. But if it exceeds that, then props to them. Like, it can really only go up, I think, for me from season three. I, don't, I think it would be really difficult to make a season that I um, held in lower regard than season three Discovery. I don't know. Maybe the gravitational anomaly, uh, the person behind it is Sukal's twin. <laughs> yeah. I saw someone post um, an image for, um, it was just like the date of the premiere, right? It was like the Star Trek logo with the date. And they posted it in the Strange New Worlds Facebook group. And I saw a comment of someone saying, oh, I thought it was for Strange New Worlds, but it's for Discovery. Never mind. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it was like, ouch. Muted excitement for this one. I, I have been going back and rewatching all the season three episodes. Um, uh, my entertainment value is actually being derived from me going back and listening to our subspace episode reviews. Uh, if only just listen to like um, uh, The Hope Is You Part 1 as we try to kind of uh break down and decode what is to come for the rest of the season it is hilarious uh it's established that um book is not much of a historian despite the name hmm. um yeah his name is not history book that's for sure um <laughs> but um yeah for me it's just more of a case of morbid curiosity i feel as if i have no reason to believe that i won't feel frustrated after the premiere in that they're going to be setting up whatever the season long mystery is it's not the kind of storytelling that I particularly enjoyed. Uh, so look, we'll, we'll do the season four uh, episode one review. We'll talk about kind of our overall thoughts and, you know, season three. And maybe the, what we'll be talking about next week is where does Discovery go from here? Or where should Discovery go from here? You know, it, it's, I don't know. It's just, it, it's not one that we, by the end of it, by the end of season three, we weren't taking a lot of joy in doing these week-to-week -week episode reviews. And I don't think if you're tuning in to a Star Trek podcast for those reviews, you want to hear the hosts just crap on it, like, all the time. I think maybe what we could do is just, it, instead of crap on the storytelling, we can just kind of, like, make fun of some of the, the bizarre uh, storytelling decisions that goes on. I, I'd rather make fun of it rather than just, like, stomp on it, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. My hope is that it's, you know, like people who endured the first two seasons of TNG and then season three rolls around and they're like, oh, I'm really enjoying this. Um, obviously, Discovery had two seasons I enjoyed, so it's a little bit different in terms of where the bad period fell. But like, I'm hoping that I 
sit down for this season, I'm like, oh, oh, this is kind of interesting. I like this. I, oh, the characters feel a little, you know, more on a track that doesn't feel heavily manipulated by where they need to go within the confines of the plot. Like, maybe there's some interesting stuff to do there. I don't think it's impossible Discovery can get back to what I enjoyed in the first couple seasons. I just... I'm just nervous about it, and I don't want to get invested, and I don't want to get yeah. too hyped up, because I don't want to be walk out of it just, like, angry again. <laughs> I'd rather them just do stuff that's interesting with their characters, and stop trying to plot out all of their motivations based on the fact that you guys had a writer's meeting, like, uh, so many months ago, and plotted the course of the entire season, and therefore you must insert the characters and the motivations that they have into like this giant uh, canvas that you've already predetermined what the outcome will be. And honestly, Cam, um, watching the first couple episodes of Discovery, thinking that it all comes down to Sukal, like I'm just like, okay, okay, folks, like um, not a great decision. Yeah, and uh, I think my approach to Discovery Season 4 will be very similar to my approach to Picard Season 2. <laughs> yeah. Just please entertain me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I Well, it's funny now, and like, I actually, I have more hope for Picard Season 2. Like, I'm actually more curious about Picard Season 2, just with the shifts behind the scenes. You know, you're going to have Q back. Um, I, I, I Very likely other legacy characters. I, my guess is that uh, Seven will be like a main character going forward, which means more time with that character. I'm actually hyped for, well, I, I should say I'm more hyped for uh, Picard season two to to a much greater degree than I am for season four of Discovery, which is kind of a reversal than what you and I both had if we went back about 18 months ago. Oh, yeah. And I think it's just because Picard season two looks like much more of a radical pivot in a different direction than Discovery season four, which looks like kind of the same thing you've seen three times now yeah although we our reaction to the uh the picard trailer uh it, it kind of made us frightened about what that season's going to be like so i don't know we'll we'll, we'll play it by ear we'll, we'll we'll determine how many episodes uh we'll do weekly reviews for for that series as well and look i would love nothing better than to come around um discovery season four and then we decide you know what let's do weekly reviews the the show uh warrants that like that would be a, a fun thing uh to happen for us yeah but we'll cross that bridge when we get there bridge i, huh? I yeah i huh? i get it yeah. actually you know what make it funnier and explain it to me cam <laughs> okay so on that note our assignment is complete if you enjoyed listening to this podcast we want to hear from you jump on over to the facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod as tyler said next week we will be tackling the premiere of star trek discovery season four fingers crossed yeah and, and folks uh, look this is a free show we've been doing it for many many years all we ask just give us five stars leave a positive review it, it's free the show is free the more five-star reviews we get, the more people find it. That's how the algorithms work. So if there's anything you want to do to support the show, we don't make you listen to ads or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, give us five stars. That's all we ask. And when more reviews come in, I'll stop smashing my ship collection. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You have to keep super gluing them together every week, which is like, that's a pain in the butt. <laughs> no kidding. You're telling me. Okay. You can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in visor replaced by eyeballs. Jordy Smith. <laughs> you can find me at Reporton. That's R E P. P is in Phoenix. O R T O N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.